Welcome to The X-Files, Stories of Life After God. This special feature of the Life After God podcast explores stories of diverse people who have left the faith and religion they grew up with. In each episode, individuals will share in their own words how and why their worldview changed, the gains and losses associated with their religious and spiritual transition, the lessons they've learned in the process, and what their life is like now. To learn more about The X-Files and the Life After God podcast, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Special thanks to Ian Gordon for the use of the theme music, The Truth Is Out There. If you would like to consider sharing your story in a future episode of The X-Files, please send a short email to ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Today on The X-Files, I speak to Luke King. Luke is a former Foursquare pastor, seminary student, and U.S. Navy chaplain candidate turned atheist. He went from believing in divine healing, speaking in tongues, casting out demons and other supernatural phenomenon, to embracing a secular perspective on life. He started the Your Atheist Pastor podcast as a way to help secular people find a place of community and belonging. Luke lives here in Southern California, and I was fortunate enough to be able to meet up with him in person to record this conversation. For more information about Luke and the work he's doing with the Your Atheist Podcast, you can visit his website, youratheistpastor.org. Hey, Luke, welcome to the Life After God Podcast. Thank you for having me. Can I just say before we get any further into this, this is like the show that got me to the point where I was willing to admit that I was an atheist. Really? Like listening to this podcast in particular was what huh. got me to a point where I was like, I'm I am an atheist. Like I really am there. So like it's su- it's a crazy honor for me to just like be here across the table from you. That's on the so show. cool, yeah. man. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much. Which um do you remember where you started? Did you start from the beginning or was I there didn't. a particular I, episode? The first actually the first episode I listened to was something about it was one of your X Files episodes. Okay. And then I remember listening to the Bart Campolo episode and being like, wait a second. That's that's not is that the tone? Is that the is that like any relation to the Tony Campolo, who's like you know who I grew up listening to in the church, and uh, so so that was it was cool to hear these people who had a background in religion and theology and the same backgrounds that I had, uh, getting themselves to a point where they were comfortable enough saying, "I don't believe this anymore," because I was it was really hard for me to get to that point of I don't believe this anymore. And, wow! And, and so this was like this was that. Uh, the, the push that I needed to like get over the edge. <laughs> you know, it's so funny too because I do most of my interviews over Skype, and occasionally I luck, I'm lucky enough to be across the table from someone like we are tonight. But when you're doing it from the uh, the comfort of your dining room and you're on Skype, you kind of send it out into the you know internet and hope that someone hears it. And and occasionally you get these stories that come yeah. back that make you really realize that. It's worth doing, you know, because it's a lot of work, but it's fun to hear that people have found encouragement and strength from it or the, you know, impetus to make a step in their life. So that's super cool to hear yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't tell you about that at the beginning because I wanted to see your like raw reaction. To that. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. We always say save it, save it for the, <laughs> save, save it for, it for the, the air. air. Yeah, save it for the radio. Um, so how, tell me a little bit. So obviously you've said already that you've come to the place in your life where, you're comfortable saying that you're an atheist, but that wasn't always true. No, no. So I, the the short, the condensed version of how I've arrived at this point of non-belief, uh, I grew up in Michigan, and I grew up in church. I attended a United Methodist Church. I got saved 
when I was in, oh gosh, I think it was like seven or eight, mm. uh, my friend invited me to an Awana's overnight thing where we went to a hockey game. And Awana all is like the youth. Awana is, yeah, it's like a, a church youth program. Right. I can't remember what it stands for. Yeah, now. it's an acronym um, for something. Yeah, I'm so disconnected from all that. I'm like, I remember. <laughs> it's a Baptist thing, isn't I, it? I, uh, yes, it is. I think it's a Actually, Baptist now thing. that you mention it. Yeah. And... At the, we went to the hockey game, and then at the end of the hockey game, this guy comes out, and he kind of you know, shares the gospel and talks about going... I don't I honestly don't remember what he talked about. I, the only thing, based on what I know, based on what I know now, I can imagine that he probably talked about going to hell in some fashion uh, and talked about, you know, giving your life to Jesus and whatever. And I remember feeling this very... Um, yeah, I remember kind of feeling this, my heart beating fast, feeling like I wanted to go make a decision. And, and, and so then he said, like, if your heart's beating really fast right now, that's the Lord telling you that. So I was like, well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. I need to go. You know, I need how to could see. he have possibly I, known? How, yeah. How could he have known other than <laughs> he's putting a lot of pressure on young seven and eight year old children who might be scared at that moment? You know, how would he have known? So I, uh, you know, that was kind of the, where it all began. And then I got really involved in church. I, I poured myself into that I, I, personality trait. I pour myself 100% into everything uh, that I do. And then I either get tired of it and stop or I keep going and Right, and it's awesome, and uh, so group in the church uh, really enjoyed public speaking and all that. So really got involved in the youth group, and the pastor that was there told me, "Hey, you might, you know, if, if the Lord leads, you might really be interested in this." And then when I was in high school, I went on a youth retreat, and I remember, and, and on that youth retreat, the Lord spoke to me and called me into full time ministry. When I look back on that now, I think. For the last two years, I'd heard people say they came, people come back from this retreat and right. say, oh, the Lord called me into full-time ministry. And seeing the response that people gave, part of me thinks that at the time I was like really wanting that response. Uh, because when you, I don't know about you, but when, for me, when I left this and looked back on all these things, I had to figure out like what the hell was going on in my brain at the time. Right, because like, what, what is that when you feel called yeah, by God? What exactly. would you? Because you, no doubt, and I felt the same way before. You no doubt felt that God was calling you, one hundred percent. I felt like He w- had my back, like like He was. I was communicating with Him. Like there was no doubt in my mind that God had called me into full time ministry. And how does just to put a pin in this for a second? Sure. Like where? How does that make? How did that make you feel? That that's a great question. It it made it makes you feel special. I mean, at least for me, it, it made me feel special. It made me feel like I have something in me that that is extraordinary, and God put it there because clearly He created me that way, and right. this is what He wanted. So it's there's this amazing feeling of security, like mm. you have a path, mm-hmm. like that you're worthy, that you can go, you know, that you can do anything because the God of the universe, like wants you to do this. So clearly, the path is there for you. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great feeling, and people love it. Like, not only do you feel powerful and invincible in a way, uh, you also, people people love that. Like, church people love when a young person wants to commit themselves to Jesus. So you get those accolades. And if there's anything missing in your life uh, as a child, like, you know, I want my dad to love me or something like that, <laughs> that love you get from the church community at the time uh, is, is uh, you know, uh, I grew up on a farm where I was expected to take... I was expected by my grandparents anyway to take on the farm, and that was the last thing I wanted to do. 
So to have somebody, to have all these church people say, oh, yeah, this is amazing. Like, God would want you to do this. It was kind of like an out. Right. You know, of like, yeah, I can get out of this. And, you know. Yeah, and it compensates for whatever lack of love and acceptance that you're sure. feeling in the rest of your life. And it, I remember having that same reaction when I gave my heart to Jesus at around the same time. I was about nine years old, and I was at summer camp and had that same kind of... Mine was less fear-based than yours, though. I think it sounds like when you officially made the choice to follow Jesus, it was out of a fear of going to hell. It could have been, and I can't say I can't say for certain. All I can say is that knowing what I know about the way Baptists typically present the gospel, right. my guess is that it was largely a fear-based motivation. And then the church that I became a part of after I got saved, before we went to the United Methodist Church, um, I was going to a family member's church, and he was the pastor there. And my okay. parents pulled us from that one because they didn't like the messages, the the tone of the message. It was very fire and brimstone, very judgmental. Oh, okay. very, very So if it if it wasn't the fear that got me there, the fear solidified me in the path that I was on. Yeah. And then you pretty much didn't waver from that point until no. the end of university or so? I – it's – it's hard to see, you know, I want to say that I was some enlightened youth who always questioned it, but I don't think I was. I, I would like to say that to probably make myself feel better as sure. opposed to, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to like being real. Um, I, I had a few questions along the way, but nothing really, nothing that was at all willing to shake my faith at all. Uh, sure. I, I didn't really start to waver until I was already a pastor. I completed my, my, uh, bachelor's degree. I was in my master's degree, and I was going through a divorce. I mean, okay. that's that's where it started to waver. What do you think was the decisive moment where you ver- the very first time you thought to yourself, "Oh no, this might not be what I've always thought it was." Well, when I when the um, with the divorce, when I left my wife, um, which there's a whole backstory to that. Um, I was really going through a time in my life. I'd been going to counseling for two and a half years to work on me uh, and to basically I had this idea that my whole life where I just saw myself as this person that that was always subservient to whoever was above me. So I always saw my pastor as above. I never saw anybody as an equal. I never saw anybody that was in any position of authority over me or any anybody really, even anybody older than me. I mm. always saw them as so much higher above me. So I read uh, Henry Cloud's book, um, changes that heal. And he had a chapter on adulthood and he talked about how, um, your pastors and your professors are no different than you. Hmm. They just have a higher education, but that doesn't make them better than you. Hmm. So then I started really get rebellious. I mean, I started, I was like, Oh hell yeah. Like you're not better than me. You just grade my papers. Um, and, <laughs> you have the and power to give me a you grade, have the power to give me a grade, but you don't, you know, you're not, you're not, uh, some divine being. And, and so I started to, to kind of challenge this authority. And when I started to challenge that authority, I started to challenge everything else that authority had told me before. But the, the, uh, that's kind of the beginning of it. But that, that defining moment, I think, was when my income no longer depended on what I believed. Hmm. Because I had once I got divorced, the church kicked me out. I was cleaning toilets. I was cleaning toilets when I was listening to your podcast. I was a, a I was a, a, a custodian for a school district. Oh wow! And uh, actually, I was a landscaper then the custodian. But uh, I was uh, I, I was no longer dependent on my belief system for my livelihood. Right. So all the questions that had amassed over the years that I'd pushed down that I'd pushed back because I couldn't. 
really if you need to end in a place of belief you can't you you know you can't really address those questions maybe honestly because you know you have to end somewhere right so so a lot of the thing the things i was questioning i never really let myself fully think about it because my income depended on those things so right. now my income didn't depend on that so it was a matter of looking at those questions and coming to the conclusions that I felt were the most true of those questions and then realizing like, wow, I don't like, I don't believe these things. And a side note to that was I didn't jump right from divorce to like, when I got divorced, I didn't immediately be like, fuck the church. Um, You know, I wasn't like, I mean, I sought out pastors. I wanted to go to another church. I also started practicing yoga. And when I started practicing yoga, I met these people who treated me more Christ-like than any Christian ever had but had no claim of relationship to Jesus. And I was like, okay, so first of all, here are these amazing secular people, these amazingly loving Buddhists, these amazingly loving Muslims, these loving everybody, mm. and yet the narrative that I'd been told the entire time I was in church was, if you're an atheist, you're going to hate life. Right. If you're a Muslim, there's something missing. If you're a Buddhist, there's something missing from your life. And here I'm meeting people that didn't really seem like anything was missing right it seemed like they had a family and they wanted good things for their family and they wanted to be successful and they wanted to be fulfilled all the things that only jesus air quotes could give you right yeah i mean it's so interesting to hear you tell that because it's essentially and you probably already know this from having listened to the podcast uh, it's the same thing that happened to me you know i had as a pastor academic questions and i think there was a way that i was able to cordon off the academic questions from intruding into my everyday life. Uh, I could sort of keep them at a loftier level in my mind. I could think about, um, you know, Nietzsche. I could think about, um, you know, some contemporary philosophers talking about the problems of faith, the problem of evil, um, the ethical problems of of, um, the church and, you know, the fact that, religion and beliefs were no guarantee that you would be a good person as you were just pointing out and all of these things I knew of course I wasn't like blind to them um but I just sort of as you said sort of put them on the top shelf or on the back burner whatever metaphor you prefer and uh and left them there and when I didn't have a responsibility to my congregants anymore and moreover to my the people that were over me my uh regional supervisors in the denomination who paid my salary, I was able to say, well, I can read this book. I could even write a blog post and no one can fire me because I'm already fired. <laughs> exactly. I can say whatever I want. I can I can do whatever I want at this point because no one is going to uh, rake me over the coals or have a meeting about me. Right. All those things happened when I got divorced. I mean, they had meetings about me at the church sure. and it was great. It was really, you know, you found out they were praying for you. They were praying for me. The most condescending thing they can ever, you know, we'll, right. we'll pray for you. I right. still get that now as an atheist, you know, three years later, I still get people who don't know calling me saying, uh, or texting me saying, how could you say those things? I'm like, dude, I've been this way for three years. I was this way when we went out to breakfast last year. Right. Okay. And everything was cool. And the thing I was going to say too, is that <laughs> I think somehow your subconscious mind or however you want to call it, like whatever kind of cognitive process that's running in the background knows that something isn't true but you don't really allow it to come to the forefront um to acknowledge it i mean i think of about uh people who maybe know that a loved one is going to die they're terminally ill 
and they're sort of blocking that out and they're living as though the person's fine or right. pretending even though in the back of their mind as we say wherever that is right. the back of our minds <laughs> uh we know that the person's probably not going to make it for much longer or we have a a teenage child that's misbehaving in in school and we hear all these reports that they're really a, kind of ornery and and causing problems but we're in denial about it right and um and it's the same kind of thing for me like i so people ask me when did you know and i'm like oh, you know what i don't know there's not there wasn't a a moment where i was like okay now, now I don't believe. I mean, I think for most people, it's probably a process. I know for me, 9-11 was a big turning point mm, for me. And I think the reason is because when you look at kind of the basic reasoning that you hear in most churches about why God is real, uh, the Bible is often offered as a, as a reason. Uh, and then they talk about the resurrection and how there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they talk about martyrdom. Mm. And usually they'll say, and you will usually hear the phrase, people wouldn't die for something that's not true. That's right. They ha- it had to be true. A bunch of people died in airplanes and flew into buildings for something that Christians don't believe is true. Mm-hmm. So by that reasoning, if you're willing to die for your faith, then that makes it true? Mm-hmm. And that, for me, was just something that I could never really let go. Was now obviously there's that's a you know but that's a, a there's all kinds of you know reasons that people will give or whatever. But that's a that's the the basic bare bones thing of like Christianity allegedly survived because it's true because people were willing to die for it and because there were eyewitness accounts and we have those eyewitness accounts in this ancient book. Well, there are plenty of faiths that have an old book. Hmm. There are plenty of faiths and spiritual beliefs that that people claim to have witnessed. Sure. So there's all kinds of yogis. You know, you look at yoga and all kinds of yogis will claim all kinds of bullshit about, right. oh, this person could levitate and this person could stop their heart and whatever, and I saw it or I heard it or I experienced it or blah, 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 whatever. Christianity isn't uniquely distinct in that manner. And now we're talking about martyrs. Well, there's all kinds of martyrs for right. different faiths. And, or and for so, patriotism. Yeah, or, exactly. Or for... I mean you know, any number of things. Yeah, people, you know, people were willing to die for, for the Nazis and people were willing to die for the Allies. Right. They're both willing to die. So being willing to die for something makes it true. Yeah, that can't and, be. And, and that was now in my in my youth and in my high school days and probably even my early college days, I that was a sufficient answer for me. Mm-hmm. But but it it became less and less of a sufficient answer with every 9-11 anniversary that came through. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of like, well, I remember watching that in math class, and these people were willing to kill, a bu- not only die, but kill a bunch of other people for what they believed. And that just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. And that was, one, that was one of the things that kind of... I mean, add to that, too, the, the for all practical purposes, the, the Muslims and the Christians worship the same God. Right. So that makes it for made for me even more complicated because here was someone purportedly saying that God had told them to uh, do this terrible act of terrorism and so many others, not just that one. That's just the most glamorous, right. so to say, uh, act of terrorism that has happened to us in the United States. Um, but then the same God apparently told um, George Bush that he was supposed to go to war in Iraq, which had nothing to do, of course, we found right. out later with the... Uh, uh, 9-11 terror attacks. So, you know, this God is quite confused. Well, Miroslav Wolf wrote a great book called Allah mm. uh, several years ago. Yeah, it's in, been a while. In seminary, and he talked about how the Jews, 
the Muslims and the Christians all believe in the same God. That's right. And it was, uh, for a lot of people, it was kind of mind-bending and ex- mind-exploding. But, I mean, it, it kind of, you look at it, I mean, it's, if if the Jews and the Christians believe in this, that was always another weird conundrum. Like, the Jews and the Christians believe in the same God, but the Jews think the Christians are wrong, and for some reason, the Christians think the Jews are right up to a point. Even yeah, the, you know, even the John Haggies of the world are like, oh, God will use the Jews sure. to accomplish his purposes oh, yeah. and probably let them in on a, a voucher or something. Yeah, yeah I think. And there's a um, there's a pastor in Orange County who uh, we won't necessarily mention who they are or where they're at or whatever, but they're very pro-Israel, mm. and they'll even say like, we need to not mess with Israel because the Israel's God's chosen people. That's right, and He's going to honor that old covenant as long as they follow it. Right. Yeah, which is some made up theology. Right. Right. It's a made up theology because you ascribe to the Tim LaHaye left behind, uh, you know, right. BS. It's the same, actually. <laughs> you know, one of the things that broke for me, too, was that to realize, and now we're really off on a theological I was going to say, here we go. <laughs> but, but, you know, when I, I remember having the, my first thought about Paul when it started to crack for me was that he pretty much made up the new covenant himself. Like, he... They're really, if you go back and you read the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, you realize that these laws, as you said, were unending. The covenants were eternal. And Paul just, I don't know, we, we said as Christians, because he was inspired by God, uh, basically said, well, no, they're not. Um, actually, there's a new covenant. And, oh, that circumcision thing that has been the sign of the covenant for generations, never mind that. And there's, you know, it's now in, in your heart. And well, it was uh, a great church growth model when you it think was. about it. Like, yeah. like, and I think it was... Um, it was maybe even motivated in a good way to broaden the, the tent stakes and, well, and you know, didn't, bring didn't, more people uh, in. Gosh, I think in Acts, didn't Peter have a dream where the food was... Right. The, the food, sheet the, was yeah, let yeah, down, the, yeah, was the, unclean. The, the food was okay. Like, bacon was cool. Yeah. <laughs> Well, bacon or Gentiles. <laughs> bacon or Gentiles. Right? The Gentiles were okay. Yeah. And uh, God was now saying to Israel, um, all the Gentiles, as long as they accept Jesus, are part of the new covenant. Yeah. And um, and the Jews can be a part of... And wait, Paul went so far as to say that the Jews could be a part of the new covenant if they accepted Jesus. So it's interesting to think about how, you know, the the whole thing has been constructed and... and uh, it's still being constructed. And the thing about God, and we were talking a second ago about the Jewish, the Muslim and the Christian God being at its bottom denominator, the same God. Um, it's to me also uh, evidence that the concept of God is really an empty vessel and it's, you know, you can fill it with, with within some limits, like almost anything you want, oh, yeah. you know? So the fact that the Jewish God, the Muslim God and the Christian God could be, at, at its bottom, the same God, uh, and have all these different manifestations just shows you what a malleable uh, subject or person God is. Well, just look at the different denominations. Right. I mean, you walk Even into... Even within Protestantism. Within Protestantism. When you walk in... I, one of the things that irritated the, the hell out of me in, in church when I was a pastor was when our senior pastor would get up on stage and talk about how much better we were than the other churches out there who believed in the same Bible, the same God, the same tenets, the same dogmas, yep. but but with different opinions. Same gospel. Yeah, same gospel, but for some reason, we had the right expression of that gospel. Yeah. And some, you know, just uh, anyway. I mean, what was, was just, your flavor? What was your denomination? Well, I, I originally grew up United Methodist, so right. very high church. And oh, it was a high church it, Methodist. It was more it, well. We had two services. We had a contemporary, and then we had a, and then we had the the more the high church. Uh, and so the right one, yeah, the right one. <laughs> well, so funny story. We had to. We got drums, oh. and we had to. The old folks, 
not down with the drums. So we had to cover the drums with a black sheet for the second service. So that way they didn't see the instruments. A funeral shroud. Yeah, so God couldn't see the drums right. during the second during their service. <laughs> but then I I left that and I actually got very involved with the Foursquare denomination, the charismatic movement. So speaking oh. in tongues, casting out demons, uh, gifts of the spirit, you know, like all that stuff was was wow. where I was, you know, at when I left. So it was very much, you know, praying for healing, Jesus can raise the dead. Gold flex can did, fall from the sky. Did Jesus raise the dead? Well, he rose himself. But other than that, I but haven't I, not seen any evidence. Not that I've seen. I just heard stories. Oh, really? The age, <laughs> Jesus raising people from the dead is like cow tipping. You hear all these stories, but there's no YouTube videos about it. So I guarantee you it's not real. And I grew up on a dairy farm. So I'll tell you what. You can't tip cows. That's a side note. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, uh, wow. That opens a whole nother can of worms here. So tell me a story about casting out demons well i'll tell you about a story about i'll tell you about having a demon cast out of me whoa even better yeah how's that so when i was in college we had a group called consuming fire and it met every thursday night and one of our professors there who's probably one of the most relatable smartest people i've ever met uh ran the group and i think part of the reason why it was so easy to dismiss my doubts was because I was having these doubts, but here are these guys with PhDs and just 10 times smarter than I'll ever be who still believed this stuff. Yeah, that is, that so is I, troubling. I feel like that was one of those things where I was like, well, I'm just not, I'm just not smart enough to understand why these doubts don't matter. Right. So I'll just defer to their smartness. Yeah. You know what I mean? I yep. mean, that's kind of how I felt. So anyway, uh, we were... At this group, and I started hearing these stories about how God was speaking to these people, and that you know the Lord was moving, and people were falling out in the spirit, and and <laughs> whenever I tell these stories to my girlfriend, she always like smiles at me and like looks at me, and it's it's a it's a combination of feeling stupid and also just being like, oh my gosh, did that really did I really believe that then? Wow. Um, but anyway, yeah. so so I started hearing all these stories about uh, how how the Lord was moving in people's lives, and. If you, there's a whole theological discussion that we don't need to get into that that you kind of get primed to believe that Christians can be inhabited by demons, and there's just there's, sure. there's theology out there that makes that so, and we'll just can leave it at that, or else we'll be here all night long. Um, so I you know, started to believe that I was um, I was like every adolescent, like every adolescent man and every man in his early twenties, and probably every man that maybe ever lives. You know, I was interested in porn, and in the evangelical world, in the Christian world, porn is just it's just the worst thing you could ever do in right. your life. It really I mean, is. Just don't. It just don't masturbate. Don't have sex. Don't look at porn, and Jesus will be happy with you. You do any of those three things, and it's just the worst possible sin you could imagine. So. I believed that I had some kind of demon of lust inside of me because I had natural biological urges to have sex. Um, How weird! I know, so odd, right? <laughs> and uh, and so so I and I didn't want to do these things. I didn't want to please God. And I thought God was God was mad at me. And why would you want the being who called you to do this great thing to be mad at you? So I figured the only reason that I was looking at this stuff and the only reason that I wanted to have sex before marriage and wanted to sin so bad was because I had a demon inside of me. So I also uh, was praying with a buddy of mine, and long story short, I went down for prayer on that Thursday night, and I remember them praying over me, and I had these sensations come over me, and I felt my muscles tense up, and I, I felt like I was going to pass out or whatever, and I, I fell down, and I was there for you know, a good two hours. On the, I even threw wow. up twice. It even had kind of like an exorcist kind of moment of like Whoa. throwing up twice or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, the next day, I kind of had this odd 
weight. I felt like this odd weight was lifted off of me. Hmm. And and then even though I felt like this odd weight was lifted off me, none of those behaviors went away. Nothing changed. No hmm. struggles left. There was no intensity that was different. I mean, it, because hmm. it, the bottom line is that they're telling you that your biological urges are wrong and bad. And, right. and they're putting you in a position where you believe those things. Mm-hmm. And so people ask me all the time now, well, how in the world do you explain that? The the manifestations that, yeah, you had the manifestation. on the floor, the vomiting. Yeah, absolutely. I say I, I was about to ask you too. Yeah, I, I say I explain it the same way that people explain why they do the things they do in Scientology. I explain it the same way that people believe why chi knocks them over or you know anything like that. You know, you you take somebody that doesn't believe in chi and doesn't believe in energy, and they're going to stand right in front of somebody who who believes in it and doesn't believe in it, and they're not going to fall over. Hmm. It's the same reason that you know people wear onyx and crystals around their neck and think that they're healing you know i remember i went to a purveyor of crystals once who told me that you have to believe in this in order for it to work right and it's a placebo it's i i firm, i genuinely believe that it is a this herd mentality placebo effect that if i because because the thing is look at all the other christian traditions who don't believe in demons right no demons ever manifest in them and I don't believe in demons. I don't believe in ghosts. And oddly enough, I've never seen a ghost. And right. I don't believe in demons. And I've never experienced a demon again. Right. So when people say, well, you know, I love when people tell me about all the ghosts that they see. And like, oh, it's true. It's true. I'm like, well, it's true for you. And that's why you see them. The right. reason I don't see ghosts is because I don't believe they exist. And if you right. have to believe something exists in order to see it, I don't necessarily think it's that real. Which goes all the way up to God. Right. To believe that he exists. I mean, faith in the Christian tradition is the thing that makes it so. Yeah. And I you know, I don't have to believe in gravity in order for it to function. Like, if I go to the edge of a tree limb and I say, I don't believe in gravity, and I jump off, I guarantee you I'm going to fall to the ground. Right. Every single and time. Every single time. If I want to boil water, 100 degrees Celsius, you know, barring any altitude issues, um, you know, it's like, it's going to happen. And so it, th- this thing of like... We have to believe in this story. Like, I firmly, like, I think all those things were placebo. I believed it. And, you know, because the same is true for people in cults. They leave them and they're like, I believe this guy and signed over all of my worldly possessions to him. And now, you know, now I see the light in a way. I mean, it really does point up the power of stories to really not just be motivational, but actually create. Um, in some cases, biological experiences in our in our in our bodies. There's a huge push in that movement specifically to share testimonies, and it's amazing how the more people that have demons cast out of them, the more demons there are to cast out. Hmm. The more people that experience healing of headaches or whatever, the more people there are who have headaches healed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an it's an interesting. You know, and there, it's it's interesting, and and the this idea that you know God can raise people from the dead, um, if He could, and if it's happening, I don't know. There's YouTube videos for everything, man. There's YouTube videos of people popping pimples now, like right. If there's that or UFOs, I mean, yeah. there's even videos that you know people claim are you. I mean, at least they have a video. Yeah. If there's those, if if you can take a video of all that shit. But you can't somehow get a video. People can make cell phone calls in Africa. If God is healing people in Africa, you can get a video of it. Right. You can't. Or a limb growing back. The yeah. classic example, of course, yeah. that it disproves the the claim is that you don't see miracles of people's limbs growing back. It's always a cancer that goes away, which, as it happens, sometimes cancer goes away. It does. 
I actually have someone who who has uh, scolded me a few times about being an atheist whose cancer miraculously went away. I mean, it really did, and it almost qualifies and, as and, a secular miracle. And, it's yeah, amazing. It, it, it's 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 a it's a we don't know what happened, but the thing is, and that goes back to this whole idea of. You know, if God is healing people at random for their can from cancer, he's pretty mean. Yeah. Like like it's pretty it's pretty cruel to think about that this person's cancer got healed, but there are kids not too far from here in the LA Children's Hospital that aren't gonna make it to next Christmas. Right. Like that's a pretty shitty God to believe in. Right. And why one person versus another and you know, sometimes God prefers to help me find my keys versus letting a person live, you know. Right, or give me a parking space. Right, yeah, or, that's or not something I deserve, really. Yeah, you know, or blessed me with, you know, an extra amount, you know, an extra thousand dollars or whatever to pay off my debt. Um, I don't think your credit card debt's more important than, you know, a child, you know, but then again... You're not God. I'm not God, and uh, this pro-life God seems real bent to get him out of the womb and then let him die in the hospital. Do people ask you whether your loss of faith corresponds in any way to your divorce or that you were or try to explain it to you so that people, you had a crisis this and, is the this is the best this is the best most infuriating most uh i just want to you know scream fuck you and punch him in the face every time somebody says well you just had a bad experience right you know and it's not true when i had a bad experience i sought i sought religious and faith counsel right um and first and then the other thing is why does me having a bad experience why does that ex- why can't that explain me leaving faith because you having a good experience you know le- for some reason if someone has a great experience with faith well that qualifies as an experience to share right worth being a faithful person right because if someone is like oh i found the lord and now i'm 10 times better yeah. well then they're they go out and evangelize i paid my tithe and now i got a new job exactly and they go out and they evangelize so why can't i tell my bad experience why right. did, why is my negative experience not qualify not you? qualify exactly yeah. and and so so i hate that question because i just want to punch people in the face um and it goes to a fundamental dis, like misunderstanding of how at least I arrived at this point. Right. Um, because I gave the church every opportunity to get here. And the thing that I tell people the most, and the thing I tell church leaders the most, who say, how can we keep people from ending up like you? Right. Because I still have some friends who are Christians, and they're pastors, and I don't, we don't, you know, we get along great. And I, they always tell me I'm going to burn in hell, and I always say I like a warmer climate. Like, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. And they don't believe that I'm going to burn in hell because they're progressive. But um, they just say that. They just say it. For fun, and I laugh at it, and and that's that. But what I tell people is that the church is great for people who have already had shit happen to them. So mm. if you walk into the church, if I were to walk into any church today and share my story of what happened, if I were to walk into my old church today and share the exact same story of what happened and not tell them, because there's a new pastor, not tell them that it happened at that church, they would say, I cannot believe any church would do that to you. Right. We wouldn't do that to you. Jesus welcomes you with open arms, and so do we. Right. The, they would say that. The church is great as long as, you've, as long as you're dirty, they can hose you off. But where they, they suck is if you're going through the dirt— they can't handle that contemporaneously. Yeah, they yeah. can't handle you, they can't handle you walking in every day to stick with the shit analogy. They can't handle you walking in every week smelling like it and trust that at the end you're going to come out all right. Mm. And I tell pastors if you've got people going through stuff and you really want to keep them, then you need to be be willing 
to walk through that shit with them. Yeah. They, they won't because congregations aren't willing to do that. Yeah. And it's it, I think it definitely shines a light on their stuff. You know, so if, if you see someone going through marital distress and they're not dealing with it privately completely, some of it leaks out into the community and people see some things. It, it's not just that they can't tolerate your marital unrest. It's that your marital unrest shines a light on theirs or their loneliness or their brokenness in some way, and it makes them uncomfortable. And I found that you know, any time that I began, even as a pastor, to share my doubts, usually around Lent and Good Friday, we would uh, do this sort of journey as a congregation into our doubts, into our disappointments, not only with ourselves and others, but with God. And we, you know, took this bold step to say, hey, is it okay to be disappointed with God? We kind of look over our shoulders at each other sheepishly and say, well, yeah, I guess we could be disappointed with God. You know, have you ever asked for something in prayer and not received it? You really thought it was a righteous thing to ask for and it didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, that probably is pretty disappointing, right? So we started to experiment with some of that expression, that honest expression of doubt and, and dis, dis, uh, disbelief at times. And um, it made people really uncomfortable, of course, uh, because it, it, it sent they walked them partway down a path that they really didn't want to go down. So it goes back to something you said before. You need to end up at the end of the path back at faith, and you don't want to embark on a path that you don't know where the end is. Um, and which in a way is, um, faith, right? Walking down a path, not knowing where the end is. I mean, that is in a a way a a definition of faith. You know, you could argue that faith is, uh, just pursuing, um, the truth and seeing where it leads you, trusting a certain kind of intuition, intellectual processes, truth, knowledge, and all the rest and seeing where you end up, which is kind of what I did and what you did, um, but I think, that, you know, especially when the pastor is having doubts, people, I've always felt that people want to believe vicariously through the pastor. Absolutely. Because they know they have doubts, but they can't allow for you to have doubts. Well, that's just like, it goes back to, I believed because people smarter than me believed. Right. And congregants are going to look at their pastor and say, well, I might have doubts, but he's had a lot more schooling than I've had. Right. And if he doesn't doubt, then I know I'm not going to. Yeah, and if there's a crack in the dam on your end of things, they start thinking, geez, if he, I mean, if he can't hold it together, what hope is there well, for me? I, I know for a fact that my divorce was, my pastor's reaction to my divorce was a visceral reaction based on the dissatisfaction in his own marriage at yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. You and, can predict that and, kind of thing. And that's, you know, and it's it's just sad because, you know, had he responded differently, maybe I wouldn't be sitting here. Right. I mean, I mean, realistically. Sure. But at the same time, like, I'm much happier in this position than I, you know, than I was did, before. Did you think that you might leave that Foursquare Church and go back to something more progressive, like um, Methodism or Episcopalianism uh, or something? I looked into more progressive churches, but when I started looking into more progressive churches, the same questions were still there. Hmm. And then when I started practicing yoga and was, you know, finding some interesting things, you know, regarding, you know, just some, some yogic beliefs and people who really bought into these things, I was like, yeah, but it's the same, the same logic is still true here. Like you can't predict, you can't 
explain that. You can't see that. Like, there's no way to you know, evaluate that or systematize it or whatever. Like, you know, you can't see a spinning wheel of chakra energy inside of you. You know, it's it's the same. It's the same thing. It's the same mumbo jumbo, just packaged differently. I mean, it's a story that people throughout ages have told about an experience that they're having. And we do that in every culture. We tell stories about what we're feeling or what's happening to us. And and as cultures mature and grow in knowledge, those stories morph and change and right. some of them stay the same or or the story stays the same and the, what and what we tell other people that the story means changes. Do you ever wish that you were able to make it work? Yep. Absolutely. There are days that I miss it. There there are days where I wake up and I wish I could have made it work. And you wanted to be able to hold on to your faith. Because I did. Because when you when you get to the point when you you know, read all these things about how God is whatever, you know, God is wrong and all that. And this is I think one of the things that's frustrating for me in the atheist community that I'm trying to work with and work on is that when you pull a religion away from someone or when they give that up, you don't just give up a belief system. Hmm. You give up a community. You give up a purpose. You give up your worthiness. You give hmm. up your friends. You give up your social calendar. And there's a vacuum. Hmm. It's a huge vacuum. And I've had to spend the last three and a half years, four years, still trying to fill that vacuum. Hmm. When you have when you're part of a religious organization, say you're Methodist or let's well, let's make it more ubiquitous. Let's say you're a Catholic or yeah. a, 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 a Baptist. If you move from California to Nebraska, right. you're going to find a Catholic church or or a, or a Baptist church. You find an instant community. Right. That's true. You instantly have instant, things in common instantly, with people. Instantly. When you are where we're at, that doesn't exist. That's right. And and it is supremely easy to fall into a position. And one of the, the biggest fears that I ever had and still have is that you, you can get very fatalistic very fast. Mm. Why does this matter? Who cares? What, you know, who gives a shit? You know, eat, drink, be merry, die happy, whatever. That's probably what your pastor <clears throat> friends would warn you about. Absolutely. And and I think that, you know, and and the 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 proud atheist in me never wants to admit that. Mm. But the human in me that desires love, belonging, and connection. Yeah looks back at those days and says, I have insanely fond memories of my childhood church because of the love, belonging, and connection. I don't have anything bad that I could possibly say against that church in terms of like what I believe and how I feel. Um, and and if I could, <laughs> if I could, you know, one of those, it's like being reinserted into the matrix, you know? Oh, it's yeah. like, it's like, I remember there's that seed in the first, in the first, whatever, he's like, he's like, uh, he eats the steak and he's like, ignorance is bliss. And he just wants to be reinserted and not remember anything. And there are times where I'm like, if I could do that, would I? Um, because just from a, from a, from a human perspective, yeah, uh, it is hard to go 29 years, 27 years believing one way. And building your entire life around something, right? And then having that gone, and you could, I assume, understand how someone would stay with a faith that is shaky for those reasons. Absolutely, going back is a little harder, maybe. Mm-hmm. But some people might even go back. In fact, I've, I've known of one I've or two. I've heard of a couple people, and I can't remember whose name it is. Somebody referenced it at a meetup. There was some very prominent atheist uh, woman who, yeah, I know uh, who you're who, talking who, about. Who went back and yeah. and um, and I don't. The thing is. 
I've never claimed to be an atheist evangelist. Right. I don't want to take someone's faith away. That's not my my goal. What would be your um, goal? How would you articulate your goal? My goal today is to create an environment where people without faith can come and experience love, belonging, and connection. Hmm. Those human needs that that people have. Yeah. And and if there's one thing, this is the reason I started my show. That's the reason I do all the things I do is because when I was going through my journey or whatever you want to call it, uh, at the beginning, I found all these resources about why I shouldn't believe. Right. I found two resources on how to rebuild a worldview. Mm. Um, because we all have one. I mean, you just have to, you know, you, you have right. to admit, you, we all, you, you need in your life, and some level, a worldview and shortcuts to decisions, you know? Yeah, and, like, and, and even and, if you have values, sometimes we talk about values, but even, I mean, obviously we have values that persist after we lose right. a worldview belief system, but what the worldview does for you, like faith, like Christian faith or Muslim faith or whatever, is allows you to organize those values into a system that, as you said, gives you a shortcut to decision-making, ethical choices, you're not a pastor anymore, obviously. No. What are you? What what do you do? Well, uh, there's that's a, that's like a, a multi pronged question because there's what do I do for money, and then there's what do I do for you know enjoyment. What do you do um, that you're excited? Because about? I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm in got into prostitution and drug dealing. See, but, I but, knew but, it because <laughs> it is lucrative. Because right? it's lucrative. It's lucrative as long as you don't get caught. Um, <laughs> I'm just a low key prostitute. Um, but aside from that, because <laughs> um, that's you can only do that at night. I. Um, I started this project a couple of years, about a year and a half ago, called Your Atheist Pastor, and it, to address the very need that I saw, which was, um, the thing is, I loved being a pastor. I yeah. loved it. It was so fun, because you get to, it's not like a, I'm not a therapist where I'm being just compensated to give you an hour of my time, which now looking back on, I'm like, I should have done that, because that's also lucrative. Exactly. Um, but you get, you get an opportunity to live life with people. So I started this whole thing, Your Atheist Pastor, because I want a place for people to come for love, belonging, and connection. Is it a physical gathering? No, not yet. Uh, oh, hopefully one day. Mm-hmm. Um, we, right now, it is, uh, the Instagram community is growing, which has been really fun. My cool. girl, my girlfriend for the longest time was like, you need to do this. And I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to deal with trolls. And I cared about what other people thought. And I didn't want to look stupid. I didn't want people to think I'm an idiot. Right. And uh, as much as I'd love to say I don't care what people think on some level I do. Of course, we and, all do. And and so we started it and there were a couple a holes at the beginning, but for the large for the most part I've had people message me saying this is awesome. Like I just, you know, you I one guy messaged me recently and said listening to your show on breakups gave me the gave me the courage to break up with my my longtime girlfriend hmm. because it just the relationship wasn't there. Mm. And and I've had other people who have who've respond, you know, to to hear that because just like you said, you put that out, you put this stuff out there, and you're like, I don't know if anybody's gonna care or listen to it. Um, so at this point, it's your podcast. So at this point, is my po- it's podcast social media. We are hoping to take it to an actual like live radio show next year, like nice. around April. Uh, we want to take that on. My girlfriend and I have a couple of other little projects we want to start, but we're not quite ready to do that yet. Uh, because we do have some people in the LA area, we're going to start doing some meetups and hopefully have some of the listeners show up Fun. just to just to get together and meet each other. Yeah, that's um, great. Because one of the things that we see is that here's the problem with atheists: the only thing we have in common is what we don't believe. Right. So 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 it like. 
that's it. So you can get a, you can have a room full of athe- you can have a room full of forty atheists with forty people that have nothing in common, right? And and, and some things pretty diametrically opposed. And I've been in those rooms, yeah. And it's uncomfortable. So rather than meeting up around atheism, we mm. want to meet up around like we like to go to breweries, so mm. we're going to do this. We Ooh, like count to, me in, yeah. We like to go to yoga classes, so we're going to do this. January seventh, I'm going to be teaching a yoga class in uh, Pomona. Oh, you're actually I'm an actually instructor teaching, now. I, I was well, I was a yoga teacher for I taught yoga for a year, nice, a year and a half full time, and so uh, I don't do that anymore. But I miss that because right. again. I loved the pastoral element of yoga. You get to be pastoral without dogmatic. People, sure. because you teach yoga and because you talk about believing in yourself, people tell you their problems when you're done. <laughs> well, and the thing about some of those like yoga communities is that the benefits almost completely redound to the participant. I mean, they obviously pay to be a part of the class, right. but the benefits are exclusively theirs. You the know? great thing it's... about teaching yoga was that I could say something in a room and anybody from any faith tradition mm. could, could resonate with that. So if mm-hmm. I was teaching a class and I we were doing tree pose, which is a tree is a pose you do on one leg, and I would say, you know, if you if you if you fall out of this, if you can't stand on one leg, why are you mad at yourself about that? Why are you beating up your, at yourself about standing on one leg? And if you can't, if you take standing on one leg so seriously, what other things do you take seriously in life that don't matter at all? Hmm. Because if you're standing in a room and you're pissed at yourself because you can't stand on one leg, yeah. What other things do you beat yourself up about during oh, the day man. that do not matter at all? At I, all. I need that yoga class. And this this is what this is what drives me. This is the thing of of why do you feel so why do you feel like you have to have your arms in the air just cuz the teacher does? Mm. Do you do you I mean, why are you so afraid to put your arms in a different position just because the teacher has his in, in another one? Yeah. You're in a yoga class. Like, why are you taking it so seriously? Like, this is the stuff I care about. Mm, so, that's so, cool. so these are uh, these are things that we're that we're working on and that we're doing. And the atheist pastor, I your like atheist pastor, your atheist. I didn't pastor. want to say the atheist pastor because I'm not the definitive atheist pastor. So, right, so I'm like, I, I feel like an atheist. You're pastor. kind of an atheist pastor. You are, <laughs> and, I, and like, like there's a, there's others. Like there are others out there. I have this really odd dream of having a your atheist pastor network that's where there cool. are several ex-pastors who i mean because let's face it ex-pastors we're good at a few things we're good at sales um we're good at teaching Mm. and uh you know we're good at kind of organizing and group dynamics and all those kinds of things but uh you know unless you're going to go jump in and learn a new skill or whatever we'd be good counselors too um but uh but but there's there's the need for that still and so i have this really odd dream of having an atheist pastor your atheist pastor network you know we're all kinds of people part of it and that's fun, we'll man. We'll see if it gets Well, there. we'll put a link to it in the in the show notes yes. so people can find it and, and be a part of it virtually at least. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In different parts of the country. That's one good thing about uh, the, the internet world is that you can take part in things that aren't right in your own neighborhood. Um, obviously, it'd be difficult to attend a yoga class, but uh, maybe that'll inspire someone else right. to go to a yoga class somewhere else in their, in their community uh, and just find that kind of wisdom um, component of their life um even if it's just seeking out a person in your life who's um maybe a little older and wiser than you and to have coffee once in a while i I do feel like that is a component of my life that i don't have as much anymore now that i'm not in 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 religion where i just have other people sort of reflecting back to me how i'm doing and kind of someone that i could go to to 
um, you know, bounce an idea off of or get some feedback about how I'm feeling. I mean, of course, we have therapists for that, but it's also nice to have a network of friends in a less formal Absolutely. way to do that. Yeah, I met a I met an ex pastor at an atheist meetup several months ago, and I just had coffee with him two days ago hmm. because I was like, he gets it, you know, he's it's totally. A, there's a yeah. There's we are out there, you know, people who trained in this and who wanted to do this, and all of a sudden come up with something that we're like, we can't continue on in this anymore. But there's there's something that drives you to want to be a pastor, and and that drive is still there in me at least. And, yeah. And and I think uh, that's fantastic. It's in you too. I mean, you know, anybody who listens to this hears that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely definitely um, something I'm grateful for that I am able to still identify that core of who I am and what I care about that persists with. You know, yeah. in, in in the aftermath of sort of the demise of my faith, and to realize after now almost five years, or I guess going on four years of being out of the church, or five years of being out of the church, and four years of realizing I'm an atheist, that um, there's more about me that's the same than there is that's different. Yeah, um, you know that that I was able and to eventually untangle the dogma part and the religious belief part, and sort of like disconnect all of its roots and pull it out without totally destroying right. my in, my insides, you know, which is, I, I think that there's hope there. And I think if one, one thing that I hope people who are a little newer in this journey hear from you and hopefully from me along the way as well, is that there is hope that you can find peace and wisdom and connection and love, belonging um, after faith, and after it's, God. It's okay to miss it. Like it's oh like when you become an atheist, you have to defend that decision so often mm. that you feel like feeling sad about what you what you're what you don't have anymore somehow negates the conclusions you've come to. Right, and it doesn't. That's amazing. Yeah, it doesn't. You can and, and even, I remember when I got divorced and I felt lonely and I felt like I you know I felt sad about the divorce. I felt like I couldn't be sad because I knew I put myself in that position. Mm. And you still can be, and you can still, you can miss elements of it. You can miss Christmas Eve service. You can miss all those things that you used to love about yeah. it yeah. and still be firm in your decision that you're an atheist. Moreover, you could even go to a Christmas you Eve service. You could. <laughs> you totally could. Well, Luke, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, time just flew by. Um, and, you know, best of luck with your you. with your ventures. Appreciate that. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of The X-Files. And thank you to Luke for coming all the way out to Pasadena to hang out and record this conversation. To learn more about Life After God and The X-Files, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. If you appreciate this show and it adds value to your life, I hope you'll consider supporting the work I'm doing by visiting my Patreon page at patreon.com slash life after god where you can make a monthly recurring donation of any size to support the production of this show i hope you'll tune in in two weeks for the next episode until then i'm your host ryan bell and this has been the x-files stories of life after god